are you here? Maybe you didn't expect that we'd get that deep right away. <laughs> that question puts us in a room where there are a lot of doors, a lot of different doors we can open. Why are you here? We could open the door of defending why we would come to church when we have warm beds and playoff games awaiting us at home. That question puts us in a room with a lot of doors, and we can open the door, perhaps, of why we exist in the first place. Let me leave that door alone for now. Another room with a lot of doors. Let's narrow our scope a little bit. Why are we here in this place? What's the purpose of us being here? What are we here to do? Some of us think that this is a social gathering. It's a time where we get to hang out with some nice people. And, you know, that's true to an extent. Local churches are gatherings of believers in Jesus. So the social dimension of it is vital. It's important. But there's a deeper purpose than that. Others might think that this is an intellectual time. They treat this time, we are here to learn and to study. They treat this as a lecture hall. And to one extent, that is true, too, because we are going to open the Word, study, and learn. But there's a deeper purpose still. Others still may think that this is an emotional time, that this is a time when we come to connect with God and engage fully with our emotions. And maybe treat it as just one option on the personal devotion buffet line. Well, yes, we do gather each week to engage with our emotions, and we should, but there is a deeper purpose still that we're here. Whether it's interacting with others, or our study of the Word, or our songs of joy, all of these purposes serve the deeper purpose to come here and praise the Lord. All of those other purposes should flow from that one, and they should deepen that main purpose also. Now, if you'll bear with me just for a moment, I'm going to open up just one more door to that question. Why are we here in this place? One more door. And I don't want us to think about the door of purpose. I want us to think about the door of explanation. What explains our presence here? Now, I think in our explanations of our relationship with the Lord and our church involvement, we're often very fuzzy and forgetful. We use phrases like, I got saved. That's a really fuzzy and unclear phrase. Friends, who saved you? Jesus saved you. Why not just say that? Jesus saved me, not I got saved. I don't know, this is a hobby horse. <laughs> but there's a deeper explanation to why we've shown up here than we just felt like. We peel back the layers and ultimately we take interest, and these believers take interest in coming to church Ultimately, because God sought us out. God saved us. God made us new. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10, shows us that we are here for the purpose of praising the Lord. It shows us that we are here with the explanation because of God's grace. So I invite you to follow along as I read Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. There are several ways you could divide and organize this passage, these first 10 verses of Ephesians. Preachers may have a hard time doing this because verses 3 to 14 of Ephesians 1 are actually one long run-on sentence in the original Greek. So one author called this run-on sentence almost a kaleidoscope that shows the beautiful light of God's grace as you turn it slightly. We, so we could divide these verses into the blessings given to us from each person of the Trinity. You may have spotted it there. We see blessings from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We could divide and organize these verses just by rattling off each blessing that Paul lists one by one. In the way we're going to divide and organize this morning, I was persuaded by uh, the old theologian John Stotts, who passed recently. Uh, his outline persuaded me. So we'll start... Just uh, laying some groundwork, we'll look at the greeting in verses 1 to 2. Then we'll look at the heading of the entire section in verse 3. We'll look at the blessings from the past in verses 4 to 6. Blessings from blessings in the present, verses 7 and 8. And blessings in the future, verses 9 and 10. Now, whatever way you slice up and organize this passage, uh, it should taste the same. And the main taste and the main point... Something like this. God has given us, those in Christ, every blessing. God has given us every blessing to people who deserve every curse. God has given every blessing to people who deserve every curse. We'll see how God has done that and what our response should be as we go forward. So first up, let's notice the greeting in verses 1 to 2. Anybody ever made a software update on their iPhone or Android or computer? Uh, what do you have to do when you come to the end of the software update or right before you download it? These terms of agreement, right? Verses 1 to 2 feel like the terms of agreement on your iPhone. If you understand why they're there, you understand that they're kind of a formality, they're important, but you don't take them seriously enough to read them. <laughs> So yeah, the openings of Paul's letters all look similar. They follow the letter-writing customs of his day. But before we rush to hit the accept button and move on, let's make a few highlights here. So Paul calls himself an apostle. I have to be really careful because I, there's a pastor Paul. I have to make sure Paul the apostle. Paul calls himself an apostle, which means sent out one. Seems like an ordinary title. But this was not an ordinary position. 
the risen Jesus himself commissioned the apostles and gave them this office. So when Paul says he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, that is simultaneously a humble statement and an authoritative one. It's a humble statement because Paul is saying, listen, I'm not about me. I'm about Christ. I don't preach myself. I preach Jesus. I didn't earn this position by my impressive credentials. God gave it to me by his will. At the same time, this is an authoritative statement. This letter is not Paul's personal blog. It's not even Paul's well-researched and footnoted dissertation. No. Christ himself commissioned Paul. The Lord, he speaks on the Lord's authority. The Lord, through the Holy Spirit, inspired Paul to write down what he wanted to write down. So verse 1, when Paul calls himself an apostle, calling us to listen. So Paul, we see then in this greeting, he turned to address the recipients of his letter. These are the Christians in the city of Ephesus. Uh, both Grantwood and Old Oak over the last couple weeks have done some background on how the gospel came to the city originally in Acts chapter 19 and 20. And just a quick review. Ephesus was the capital of the region Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It's a populous city, about 300,000, which was big for that time. And it was a port city. It was on the sea, right on the border. Uh, and we see in these chapters in Acts 19 and 20 that there were many people enslaved there to spiritual darkness and to idolatry. It was home to one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. Now, some scholars, just a quick side note, some scholars question whether or not Paul really meant this letter to go to the Ephesians. Because they read other of Paul's letters addressed to churches, and they see that he fills them with specific individuals and specific situations. And that just seems to be absent in Ephesians. The more general uh, tone and approach of Ephesians might be because of Ephesus was a major city. And major cities have villages surrounding it. So it may have been that there were multiple churches that popped up around the city of Ephesus, and this letter made its way around these various churches, thus explaining its more general approach. So just this greeting part, uh, who is he writing to? He says he's writing to those who are saints, faithful in Christ Jesus. If you know this already, then you need a reminder. The title saint is not re reserved from some, for some spiritually elite, black belt, green beret Christians. <laughs> Every believer in Jesus is a saint. It literally means set apart for God. And we are set apart for God, sanctified, because of what Jesus did for us. And that's when he said we cause them faithful in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean so much as dependable as it does full of faith in Christ Jesus. So every Christian is someone who is set apart by Jesus and who trusts in Jesus. I'm just rounding out this greeting here in verses 1 and 2. Paul wrote there this opening salutation, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a very common Greek greeting, but Paul did more than Christianize it. You see grace and peace are vital and essential elements to the gospel message. 
It's out of grace, out of God's free and undeserved favor that he has taken the initiative to save his people. And that grace has produced reconciliation to himself. It has produced peace with himself. Grace and peace. Now we could say more, but I think we've seen enough now to hit the accept button on the terms and conditions. <laughs> so let's move on to verse 3, where we see the heading of this whole section. Verse 3 is like the thesis statement that your English teachers always wanted you to write in your term papers. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let's make a couple of observations here, just from this verse. First, observe the object of our praise from this verse. Observe the object of our praise. Who is the one we praise in this verse? It's God. Seems simple enough. But it goes deeper than that, doesn't it? When we read this verse in the verses after it, Paul calls us to praise the triune God. One God, three persons. The Father gives every spiritual blessing, that is, blessings of the Holy Spirit, if we are in the Son. As we continue in this passage, we're going to see how the Father planned our salvation, the Son accomplished our salvation, and the Spirit applied our salvation to our hearts. Praising the triune God. This is the object of our praise. Second, observe the reason for praise from verse 3. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now bear with me, but I think if we work backwards and start at the end of this verse, the reasons that we praise God might land on us a little better. So working backwards in verse 3, the kind of blessings that God has given us, Paul says, are heavenly and spiritual. Now, Paul's communicating a couple of things when he describes these blessings like this. For one, he's describing how God gives these blessings, that is, by the Spirit, and he's describing where our future home is. But when he says these blessings are heavenly and spiritual, he's also communicating what these blessings are not. These blessings are heavenly and spiritual. They are not earthly and material. One of the Christmas presents that I got Kate this year uh, was a sheet warmer. Now, <laughs> it basically amounts to a hairdryer with a hose that you stick under your blankets. And when we remember to set it up, we have a cozy, warm surface at night instead of a sheet of ice. <laughs> this is a luxury. It's what the kids call bougie. It stands for bourgeoisie. <laughs> but this is a sheet warmer, as great of a luxury that it is. It's just a thing. The blessings that God gives, and Paul emphasized here, are those that are the most important, those that last forever. That is what Paul laid out in the following verses. He lays out these blessings of adoption, redemption, forgiveness, inheritance, sealed with the Spirit. We should take a page from Jesus himself. Jesus in John 6 said not to work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. 
Paul right here is reorienting our priorities for what kinds of blessings the Father gives that are the most important. Working backwards still, the reasons for our praise from the triune God. God has blessed us, Paul says, with every spiritual blessing. Every one. Kate and I have used uh, giant eagles curbside service recently. Um, now, we've just, it's because we felt pinched for time uh, over the last couple weeks. Uh, we'll probably need to do it again, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, at our latest trip to Giant Eagle's curbside service, they were out of chicken breast. They gave us crushed and nearly spoiled cherry tomatoes. And they forgot to give us at least five items that we ordered and paid for. Now, if we ever decide to use curbside service again, we will always suspect that they don't have enough, that they don't pick out good stuff, and that they will forget what they should give us. Like we said with the kids, we don't have to have any of those suspicions with the Lord. He has all resources. He has not forgotten. And he has not withheld any spiritual blessing to his people. Now we've worked back all the way to the beginning of this phrase, the reason why we praise the triune God. Paul says he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessed us in Christ. You've probably heard this. Plenty of people claim to live the hashtag blessed life. And it's true to a degree. Jesus said that God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. To some degree, God does provide and bless all people commonly. It's called common grace. But for the blessings we're talking about here, the most important ones, every spiritual blessing, we cannot have them if we are not in Christ. If we are not in Christ, then we are in Adam. We remain in the sinful, rebellious nature that we inherited and that we act on. And the only way that God gives these blessings is because Jesus deserves them. And we can receive these, receive these blessings if we trust in Jesus to stand in our place as our representative. That's why Paul, over 40 times in Ephesians, uses the phrase, in Christ. In Christ. We are found not in ourselves, but in Christ. So Ephesians is all about God's work to make a new people. And Ephesians begins by emphasizing that this is a work he does, not us. It's a work he does through Christ and by the Spirit. And the appropriate response is praise. So friends, before we move on to the next point, I wonder... What is the state of your heart's praise for God? I don't know how well we can rate this, but if you feel like your heart has been reduced to embers in this, perhaps we, with the Lord's help, you can fan it into a flame again if you dwell on the truth that God has given you every spiritual blessing in Christ. Just think about what this means for us then. If we truly already have every spiritual blessing, that reshapes everything about our 
ourselves. It reshapes how we see everything. It reshapes our ambitions. Our ambitions no longer have to be life or death if we get them or not. Our disappointments don't have to be so soul-crushing. We can have true contentment regardless of our circumstances, and we can just be free to selflessly serve God and others. Every spiritual blessing. That's the heading of all this. Let's get into the particular spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Verses 4 to 6, Paul lays out the blessings God has given from the past. Blessings from the past. Now we're going to investigate these verses with a few questions. Just a few basic questions in verses 4 to 6. First question. All right, in the past, what did God do? We spot this in verses 4 to 6. In the past, it says, God chose us and God predestined us. Those are really simple phrases, aren't they? But those simple phrases challenge our understanding. Now we'll look more at what these verses say, but we need to have a couple of postures in place before we move on. We need to know that there are some truths that God has laid out for us in Scripture that we just we won't be able to comprehend completely. And it, these truths will require us to be okay with a little bit of tension in our minds. And so we need to have the posture also of humility and trust to listen to what the Bible plainly says. So second question here, what did God choose us or predestine us for? What did God choose us for? We spot this in these verses. It says he chose us to be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us for adoption as sons. And we can see how these two mesh together, right? If we are to become a part of God's family, then we're going to bear the family resemblance of being holy and blameless. That God chose us to be holy and blameless before him, it pushes back against the notion that God choosing us means that we don't have to try anymore. That we can do whatever we want. Because here, friends, what's the, what's the goal of God choosing us? The goal is for us to be holy and blameless, not to live however we want. That God predestined us for adoption as sons, sons and daughters, this word would include both, means that he planned to do more than just bring us back to a neutral point with him. No, he, he brought us into his family. He planned to bring us back into the same fellowship that has eternally existed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Third question, just investigating these blessings from the past. How did God do this? How did God do this? The answer shouldn't surprise us, because we've gone over it already. God did this through Christ. It says he chose us in him, in Jesus. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. He blessed us in the beloved. It makes sense, doesn't it? If we are going to be holy and blameless, it will only be because Christ has given us his own holiness and blamelessness. Paul wrote in Philippians 3 verse 9, that he was found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It makes sense, doesn't it? If we are to become children of God, it will only be, only be because we are united to the only begotten Son of God. This is how the Gospel of John opens. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. 
It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of, the, of man, but of God. John Calvin said famously, the Son of God became the Son of Man, so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. Fourth question, this last one, investigating these blessings from the past. Why did God do this? So just investigating, we ask, what did God do? What did God choose us for? How did God do this? Why did God do this? Look at these verses in verses four to six, and you can spot God's motivation throughout these verses. At the end of verse 4, going into verse 5, just a reminder that the chapter and verse divisions aren't a part of the original text of the Bible. At the end of verse 4, going into verse 5, it says, in love, God predestined us. If anyone thinks that predestination is a cold and icy doctrine, look at this verse. In love, God predestined. He chose us in Christ to be holy and predestined us for adoption as sons. Why? It says, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. This means that he didn't do this because anybody made him do it. This means that he didn't do this because he saw a little spark in his people and those are the ones that he chose. He did this because it was his free and sovereign loving choice. And since God freely chooses us out of love, not because of anything in us, that means that he alone gets the glory. And it leaves us no room to boast. It's like his explanation of choosing Israel that we read in Deuteronomy 7. Do you remember that? I don't know if you caught it. God said there, it wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Just carry that out. Why, God, so God, why do you love us? Because I love you. He chose to. Nothing in us. It was his choice. And this choice shows off God's glory. God's glory is that he radiates his love like the beams of the sun. And those beams reach those who don't love him. And who are unlovely. Now friends, think about these blessings from the past. I know they're heady. Think about what they mean. If you trust in Jesus before you ever took a breath, God had you on his heart. If you trust in Jesus, that means that God did not leave your salvation to chance, but did everything to secure it. If you trust in Jesus, it means stunningly of all. God chose people who refused to choose him. He chose sinful and blameworthy people to be holy and blameless. He chose those who are children of wrath and children of the devil, as Paul will say in Ephesians 2, to be his own children. Friends, let me just ask you, if God did not choose us, what makes you think that we would choose him? <clears throat> I'm speaking for myself, if it, it, it depended on my choice, I never would have come, and I never would have stayed. So praise God for his glorious grace. <clears throat> we turn now to verses 7 and 8, 
and we see the blessings God has given to us now in the present. Blessings in the present, verses 7 to 8. Now these verses explain more what Jesus had to do in order for us to become part of God's family, to be adopted as sons and daughters. It says, in Jesus we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption, you may know, means deliverance by payment of a price. It was a term used in the context often of delivering slaves or captives. So the clearest picture from the Old Testament is how God delivered the Israelites from captivity or slavery to Egypt. Now this blessing of forgiveness that comes right after redemption, it explains what's meant by redemption. So by redeeming us, God has set us free from slavery to sin, and to sin's power and to sin's guilt. He's freed us, freed us from sin's power and sin's guilt. Now, redemption is a big umbrella term. That full and final freedom will come when God glorifies our bodies so that we are like Christ's resurrected bodies and without sin. But redemption begins with what Paul says here. Redemption begins with the forgiveness of sins. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes the point that most of us like the idea that Jesus can free us from the power of what we can't shake off from ourselves. He says people are ready to believe in or accept a Jesus or a Christ who is going to make them happy, who is going to solve the problem of temptation and misery and sins. People like that Jesus. And it's true. I don't want to dismiss it. It's true. Jesus breaks the power of sin in our hearts and our lives. His victory over sin and death and his resurrection is our victory over sin and death. He came to set the captives free. But listen, before Jesus rose again victoriously, he shed his blood on the cross. So when Paul wrote that Christ gives us forgiveness of sins, he clarified that not only do we need deliverance from the power of sin, we need deliverance from the guilt of sin. At that point, we have a harder time acknowledging and admitting. Because all of us, we can try to be honest that we have behavior struggles, right? We struggle with anger, we, have a, we struggle with temptation, we struggle with lust. We have an easy time acknowledging that. We have a harder time acknowledging our guilt. An easy time acknowledging our sins, a harder time acknowledging I've sinned against God. This means, friends, we need more than a boost to realize our full potential and be better people. We need more than that. We are stained and need cleansing. We are separated from God and under his judgment, and we need reconciliation, peace, and forgiveness. And do you want to know how serious our dilemma is? Do you want to know how serious our guilt is? Consider the cost it took to pay. The very blood of the Son of God who came in the flesh. That speaks of how serious our guilt is. So praise God that this forgiveness here is full and final. We do not have to wait for this. This is a blessing we have now in the present. That Jesus paid it all 
No condemnation now we dread. These are riches of grace that God, the offended party, the one who is sinned against, pursued the ones who sinned against him. Now, some of us might fall into thinking that we aren't good enough to call ourselves Christians. Maybe you've been there in a place of your life. Maybe you're at that point right now. Friends, if you think that way, you're missing the whole point. The whole point is we are not good enough. Let's quote Martin Lloyd-Jones one more time. The Christian is the one who realizes while he was yet a sinner, while he was yet an enemy, while he was going directly to hell, even then, the work of salvation was all accomplished by the death, by the blood of Christ. Friends, do you have these blessings? Do you have redemption? Do you know you are redeemed? Do you know your sins are forgiven? Go to Christ, the blood he shed on the cross for sinners. But the present blessings continue in verse 8. Paul wrote that God lavished his grace and wisdom and insight. And he's going to spell out these uh, more clearly in the following verses. But he at least hints at here that Jesus did all that was necessary for our redemption and forgiveness. But in God's wisdom and insight, God calls us to take hold of redemption and forgiveness. So think about how this works out in our lives. Many of us grew up in the church. Many of us grew up very familiar with the gospel story, with Christianity, the basic tenets, the basic components of this story. You know, many of us knew the statement, you know, Jesus died for our sins, but honestly, we just still shrugged our shoulders at it. But there was one moment in our lives when that statement, when the gospel, Jesus died for our sins and rose again, when that became personal. And that was because God lavished his grace on us in wisdom and insight in just the way so that he would open our eyes to cross us and take hold of them. I don't know what that story is for you personally. I would love to hear it. Now, I want to just illustrate this. I want to give an example. One of my counseling professors tells this story. Uh, he was a youth pastor, and he had a kid in his youth group, teenager, high schooler. His parents went to church, and his parents just made him come to church when he was growing up, and so he came to youth group. And it, but it was very clear that this kid was not a Christian. Didn't look like one, didn't act like one. And he asked all the hard questions every single week and made youth group a little bit more interesting. <laughs> as soon as he graduated high school, he was gone. Um, didn't come back to church. Uh, a lot of us know this story, are familiar with it. Maybe that is some of our stories. Um, but then 10 years later, a counseling professor was still a youth pastor at that church. And this kid came back. And he showed up. He showed up without his parents. And he seemed changed to my counseling professor. And so he invited him to dinner, he had dinner with his family, and he asked me, listen, what, what gives? What explains all this? And he said it, it was something about his father. This kid's dad was a leader of the church, and yet uh, he was angry and expressed his anger at his son and at his wife very often. But this kid, he began to see his dad change. And one day, his dad approached him, and he said, this is something my heart is weighing heavily. I want to ask your forgiveness. That I have sinned against you, I have sinned against your mom, 
I'll be asking again, well, would you forgive me? And that moment of humility from the dad turned the gospel from just a simple propositional phrase into a living reality to see it displayed. This was God lavishing his grace and wisdom and insight to this young man. I don't know how he did that for you. But the good news is, Jesus did not just die on the cross, redemption and forgiveness secure, and then say, all right, guys, it's up to you. you got to receive it. No. God went even further than that. He said, I'm going to open your eyes so that you will receive it. Lavished the wisdom and insight. Now, uh, we have one more set of blessings. These will be the quick ones, because I know we're running out of time. I'm sorry. Let's finally turn to verses 9 to 10, where we see blessings of the future. And these, to some degree, will spill over into verses 11 to 13, which we're going to cover next week. Here in these verses, verses 9 to 10, Paul said that God made known to us the mystery of his will. That this wasn't something that they figured out on our own. This is something that God told us. Now, the New Testament uses this term mystery not to refer to something that's mysterious, but to refer to a truth that was previously hidden, but now God has revealed. Paul's going to use this term again later in Ephesians. Here, mystery refers to God's purpose in Christ, a plan for just the right time, a plan to unite all things in him, both things in heaven and things on earth. What does that mean? If we just read it casually, we might think that it means that one day God's going to save everybody and all people will come to Christ. That would go against the clear teaching of Scripture. We have to interpret scripture with other scriptures. So what does it mean then? Well, clearly this isn't going to happen in the future. But statements from other letters in Paul help us. For example, Romans 8, verses 20 to 21. says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. More familiar Philippians 2, 9 and 10. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Last Wednesday was one of those times, the many occasions, that our world teetered on the edge of tearing apart at the seams. How many times does that happen in history? God has a plan to bring everything that is broken and make it whole. And that plan centers on Christ. It will happen when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom on earth. This is when all things will be subjected to him. Some things will be subjected to him willingly. Those who have been redeemed by Jesus and joyfully exult in his rule. Other things will be subjected unwillingly. And nevertheless, evil will be restrained and all will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And so the blessing here, verses 9 to 10, the blessing once hidden and now revealed, is that we, who all of us, who have contributed to the brokenness of this world, God has made us and included us in his plan to make it whole. 
So in closing, friends, just zoom out and stare at Ephesians 1, 1 to 10. Think about where Paul was when he wrote this. He's going to tell us in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He's in a prison cell. He's chained to a guard. His wrist hurts, probably wrist bleeding, eyesight dim. And yet he rises above his circumstances and praises. Let's join him to rise above our often petty problems and gaze at the blessings God has given us before the foundation of the world. To take hold of what we have now and to pursue hard after him. To anticipate what's promised to us in the fullness of time. Whether it's the blessings of the past, present, or future. All of these are bound up and are being bound to Christ. There is no other fountain for bringing these blessings for you. Don't settle for anything. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace that has given us who deserve every curse, every blessing. We praise your great name, God. Help us to praise your name in all of our life. To exalt Jesus, not ourselves. That is our mission. That is our home. Thank you, God, for this time. Supply your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.